0: It's my privilege to be the host of this podcast from the heart of Spurgeon that is brought to you by Media Gratiae. You can find more of their material at mediagratiae.org and if you go there and go to Slash Podcasts you'll find links to this and other podcasts and be able to sign up for a weekly newsletter directing you to our featured sermon. The featured sermon is the one of the seven sermons that we try and read each week and you can follow that. At reading Spurgeon on X and then each week as I say we choose one particular representative sermon to try and showcase something of this preacher's God-given capacity for bringing Christ to bear upon our souls. As we say so often we're not studying Spurgeon, we're using Spurgeon to help us to study Christ and the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ uh, trying to learn from a master of the craft in order that we ourselves might both adore Jesus in our own hearts and learn how to make him known for the glory of his name. So today's featured sermon, this week's, is 1107, and the title is A Call to Worship. If you want to read through the whole week with us, it's 1102 to 1108, and then next week, will be 1,109 through to 1,115. Next week's featured sermon, if you want to get ahead of the game, is 1,114, the title Onward, and Philippians 3, 13 and 14 is Spurgeon's text. But with all that said, let's get back to this week's featured sermon, 1,111, the title A Call to Worship and the text Zechariah 8.21, and the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us go speedily to pray before the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. The sermon was preached in 1873 on the 20th of April at the tabernacle in London. Spurgeon tells us that as the coming back of the sun when he advances north of the equator and again cheers us with his warmth is marked by the upspringing of flowers and the singing of birds, so the return of God's Holy Spirit to bless his church is marked by certain signs and tokens. And the text, he suggests is going to reveal those signs and tokens to us to help us understand the indications of God's a particular blessing in his presence with his people. Uh, so it's a very brief introduction. Spurgeon launches straight in to the, the substance of the sermon, a reminder to us uh, that these things aren't uh, fixed uh, in terms of structure. Uh, yes, there will be an introduction, but it doesn't have to be super clever or massively developed, it can very simply say, this is what the text is about, and here we go. One of the first signs of God's presence among the people is that they take great interest in divine worship, says Spurgeon. And the first solemn assembly mentioned here is the prayer meeting. He tells us that certainly one of the surest tokens of a visitation of God's spirit to a community is their delighting to meet for prayer. And the prayer meeting's at Spurgeon's tabernacle were typically marked uh, not just by uh, numbers in attendance, but by fervency in intercession. Now, there's a a suggestion that many have made that there was a a so-called engine room, uh, that there was a place where the people were always praying there in the building. Uh, I'm assured by uh, the present occupants that, that that was not the case. Uh, it's a nice idea. Uh, but it isn't entirely uh, accurate. Nevertheless, it is true to say that prayer sustained the effort that was made and the blessing that was obtained by the grace of God. So Spurgeon says it's no statement of mine suggested by unreasonable zeal, but it is the result of long-continued observation when I assert that the condition of a church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. If the spirit of prayer be not with the people, the minister may preach like an angel, but he cannot expect success. If there be not the spirit of prayer in a church, there may be wealth, there may be talent, there may be a measure of effort, there may be an extensive machinery, but the Lord is not there. It is as sure evidence of the presence of God that men pray, as the rising of the thermometer is an evidence of the increase of the temperature. As the nilometer measures the rising of the water in the Nile and so foretells the amount of harvest in Egypt, so is the prayer meeting a graceometer, and from it we may judge of the amount of divine working among a people. If God be near a church, it must pray, and if he be not there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be slothfulness in prayer. I think it's important for us to note that that's not simply uh, the ability of the elders of a particular congregation to make everybody come to the prayer meeting. It's not simply a physical presence, but it's spiritual engagement. And where there is spiritual engagement, there will be physical presence wherever that is possible. So uh, this is not something uh, that is humanly bullied or Uh, promoted by some clever means, this is an appetite for the blessing of God that reveals itself in a calling upon his name. Spurgeon emphasizes that believers in a right state of heart value the prosperity of the church and, seeing that it can only be promoted by God's own hand, they cry mightily unto the Lord of hosts to stretch out his hand of mercy and to be favorable to his church and cause. Church members who never pray for the good of the church have no love for it. If they do not plead for sinners, have they, they have no love for the Saviour, and how can they be truly converted persons? Spurgeon's really pushing this. Such as habitually forsake the assembling of themselves together for prayer may well suspect the genuine character of their piety. I'm not, of course, alluding to those who are debarred by circumstances, but I allude to those who, from frivolous excuses absent themselves from the praying assemblies. So, nice pastoral reminder, bit of balance there. Yes, there are some people who are going to be providentially hindered, uh, but Spurgeon says I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about the people who make excuses and just don't bother. How then dwells the love of God in those who don't bother? Are they not dead branches of the vine? May they not expect to be taken away before long, he asks. Then he goes on, same theme. Earnest meetings for prayer, indeed, not only prove our sense of need and our desire for spiritual blessings, but they manifest most practically our faith in the living God and our belief that He hears prayer. For men will not continue in supplication if they do not believe that God hears them. Sensible men would soon cease their prayers if they were not convinced that there is an ear which hears their petitions. So, emphasizing now the the, the spirituality of a people who are praying, the the indication of God working in their midst. It's an ill token to any community of Christians when prayer is at a low ebb, for it is clear evidence that they do not know their own need. They are not anxious about spiritual things, neither do they believe that God will enrich them in answer to their petitions. So he says, and, and here's the directness of the preacher, here's the forthrightness. I shall put it to the conscience of each one of you to say whether you are as prayerful as you should be. Did you ever hear of a church member who had not attended a prayer meeting for a month? Can you imagine asking that question in some congregations today? Do you know of church members who never assemble with the brothers so much as once in a quarter of a year? Do you know of any who have not been to the prayer meeting in this place for the last six months? Do you know such? I will not say I know any such. I will do no more than hint that such people may exist. But if you know them, you will give them my Christian love and say that nothing depresses the pastor's spirit like the absence of church members from the public assemblies of prayer and that if anything could make him strong in the Lord and give him courage to go forward in the Lord's work, it would be if all of you were to make the prayer meeting your special delight. I shall be satisfied when I see our prayer meetings as crowded as the services for preaching. And it strikes me if ever we be fully baptized into God's spirit, we shall arrive at that point. A vastly larger amount of prayer ought to be among us than at present. And if the Lord visits us graciously, there's the thrust of the sermon, he will set us praying without ceasing. So the prayer meeting. One of the key indicators of whether or not a church is is stirred up on account of God's particular blessing to them in a particular season. The second kind of meeting that Spurgeon draws attention to is what he calls meetings for instruction, translating the second sentence of his text in accordance with the Chaldee, let us seek the doctrine of Jehovah of hosts. The Lord's coming near to any people will be sure to excite in them a longing to hear the word. God sends impulses of inquiry over men's minds, and suddenly places of worship become crowded which were half empty before. Preachers also who are cold and dead become quickened and speak with earnestness and life. Here then is an indication of God's favor. It's a token for good when people press to hear the word. I think we have in measure the first token, a love for prayer, but we want it far more. As for the second token, namely an earnest love for listening to the word of God, we have that in abundance. See ye not how the crowds rush in like a mighty torrent as soon as the doors are open to them. So he puts the two together and says it seems that both these forms of meeting were loved by the people because they sought salvation therein or as the margin has it they entreated the face of the Lord. And so when prayer meetings and preaching meetings shall be attended with this end and object that we may get near to God and that we may glorify God there shall be happy days indeed for us. Our fathers loved to meet for prayer, says the preacher, and to hear the preaching of the truth. And when they came together, it was with an intensely earnest desire to obtain the divine blessing. To get this, they risked life and liberty, meeting even when fine and imprisonment, or perhaps the gallows might be their reward. Oh, to see the like earnestness, the same earnestness among ourselves as to the means of grace. May the Lord Jesus send it to us by the working of his Holy Spirit. And friends, if you doubt what Spurgeon says there, then I at least can affirm what he says about the, the grief to a minister of the gospel, when there's habitual absence from the prayer meetings, and when frivolous excuses are made with regard to attendance at the the means of grace, I can assure you that nothing more rejoices, encourages, and strengthens the hands of the elders of the church, and I would say ultimately of the church as a whole, than when it is wholeheartedly engaged in praying for blessing from heaven. This consciousness of God in our midst that spurs us to engage with him in prayer. And it is, I think, a tragedy uh, that so many congregations not only have stripped away one of their preaching meetings every Lord's Day, but have uh, are very often functionally abandoned their prayer meetings. It's good for us to spend a season uh, dedicated to pleading with God for his favour out of a consciousness that he is ready to bless. So Spurgeon moves on now to the second sign of God's visiting a people in mercy is that they stir each other up to attend upon the means of grace. For the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go speedily to pray before the Lord. That is to say, they did not merely ask one another to go if they casually met. They did not bring in the subject accidentally if they could do so readily in common conversation. But the inhabitants of one city went to another on purpose to exhort them. They made a journey about it. The point is they they invested some time and some energy in sorting these things out. They had such a desire that great numbers might come together to worship the Most High that they took much trouble to invite their neighbors. God will be with us indeed if each one of us shall be anxious to bring others to Jesus and to that end shall try to bring them to hearken, to listen to the word of God. So it's interesting here, Uh, Spurgeon's kind of tipping back and forth over the point uh, of whether or not these are marks that God is present or they are ways to pursue the presence of God. I think the emphasis is on the first, uh, but he keeps pushing a little bit back toward the other. So why were these men so earnest? They persuaded others to come to the meetings for worship out of love to God's house, to God's cause and to God's self. It's his first main thought under this heading. God's house is honored and beautified when great numbers come together. The ways of Zion do mourn and languish when but few assemble for prayer. So a great space and only a sprinkling of people to occupy it is like a big barn with only one bundle of straw in it. The winds howl in and out of it very miserably. I am sure if any of you attend a place of worship where there are very few beside yourselves, you must feel unhappy. And if you do not, why surely your hearts cannot be in the right place. Warm hearts are not easily kept alive among empty pews. A coal must be very lively to burn alone, but many glowing coals laid together help to keep each other alight. Aspergian isn't saying that uh, we're just seeking numbers for numbers' sake, but he does say, There's a blessing when there are many bodies and souls gathered together in one congregation and that those heaped up coals help to keep the heat in the place. Full houses give opportunity to the preacher to glorify God. It's true, it's a lot easier to preach to a number of people uh, and when it's a small number, gather them together if you can in in one knot, uh, one group group where you can see everybody side by side I've, I've preached in congregations where you have got sort of you know those two fellows right at the back on the on the left-hand side and uh, that guy who's uh, pressing the record button on the old-fashioned uh machine uh, there on that side and then this family who are up here uh, and there's four of them and then over on the other side you've got the the pianist or the organist and there's uh, that lady who sits right in the middle it's, it's hard to participate, it's hard to preach. Uh, even the, the gathering together of a small group is a blessing to them. There's a, a sense of unity, even in the physical expression of those things. It's hopeful work, Spurgeon goes on, to throw the net where there are great shoals of fish. Where men are hearing, we may hope that God will be blessing. And hence, earnest Christians love to see the aisles and seats crowded. So does not David seem to relish the service of the Lord his God all the more because of the multitudes that kept holy day? Hence the saints love to see many come to pray and to listen to the word because the multitude honors the house and God thus honors God himself. Oh, brothers, we think the cause is sadly declining when hearers are like the gleanings of the vintage, when service time comes and sees vacant seats by the score because professors shrink at the weather, it's too cold, or hunt up an excuse for staying at home, it's it's far too wet, being too idle, too indifferent to cross the threshold of their houses, I'm too weary, it's too hard, unless some eloquent preacher or fresh comer shall attract them, stirred up by just a carnal appetite. But, he says, we reckon that God's cause prospers when the people come joyfully in their bands to listen to the truth, and God's Spirit applies it to their hearts with power, leading them to prayer and praise. But then again, believers love to bring others to the house of God because they wish to do good to them. Grace is generous and is never akin to churlish Nabal, uh, that uh, foolish and godless man who turned David aside when he sought his mercy. Misers would fain keep all their wealth to themselves, but a man who's rich in faith feels his happiness increased when others have faith too. As soon as we drink of the water of life, a sacred instinct within us bids us cry, "'Come, ho, everyone that thirsts, come to the waters!' He knows not the grace of God, who has no desire that others should know it also. Thou wilt assuredly long for the souls of others if God has saved thy soul, says Spurgeon. Natural humanity, let alone our alliance to the divine nature, leads us to bid others come to Christ. And then there's a third reason. The love of company in the Christian makes him invite his neighbors to gospel worship. Believers are like sheep in this, among other things, namely that they are gregarious, they're they're outgoing, they enjoy company. A man who loves to keep his religion to himself must surely be a stranger to the religion of Christ. Communion is one of the sweetest joys of the Spirit. Fellowship with saints above will be one jewel of our everlasting crown, and fellowship with saints below is one of the sweetest cordials of our mortal cares. So for the sake of communion, we long to see many going upon the heavenly pilgrimage. And then Spurgeon just makes a a little comment, as it were, to close this point, that the inhabitants of the cities themselves, not any specific ministers or missionaries, undertake this duty of invitation and persuasion. So this is not some kind of a professional endeavor, but this is something that is personal, something that springs up in the hearts of all the people. So I believe, says our preacher, that when a man stirs others up it's good for himself, for a man cannot in common decency be very cold himself who bids others be warm. He cannot surely, unless he be an arrant hypocrite, be negligent of those duties which he bids others attend to. So this morning, he pleads, I ask you to visit one another and to say, come, let us not as a church lose the presence of God after nearly 20 years enjoyment of it. Let not our minister's hands grow weak by our neglect of prayer. Let not the work of the church flag through our indifference, but let us make a brotherly covenant that we will go speedily to pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts, that we may retain his presence and yet more, have yet more of it to the praise of the glory of his grace. And that would be no bad commitment for us to make if we are God's people. Then I must pass on to notice that it appears from our text that it is a sure mark of God's visiting a people when they are urgent to attend upon these holy exercises at once. The text says, Let us go speedily to pray, by which is meant, I suppose, first, that when the time came to pray, they were punctual, they were not laggards. Spurgeon's extremely practical here, and he doesn't shy away from making the point. These are people who... Uh, don't turn up late. They come speedily. I wish late comers would remember David's choice, says Spurgeon. You remember what part he wished to take in the house of God? He was willing to be a doorkeeper, and that not because the doorkeeper has the most comfortable berth, for that is the hardest post a man can choose. But he knew that doorkeepers are the first in and the last out, and so David wished to be first at the service and the last at the going away. How few, though, says Spurgeon, would be of David's mind. It's been said that dissenters in years gone by placed the clock outside the meeting house so that they might never enter late, but the modern dissenters place the clock inside that their preachers may not keep them too long. There is some truth in the remark, but it is not to our honour, says Spurgeon. If we go slowly to market, let's go quickly to meeting. If we're slow on weekdays, let's go quickly on the Sabbath. Let's never keep Jesus Christ waiting, and we shall do so if we are not in time, for he is sure to be punctual, even if only two or three are met together in his name. Boosh. Well, speedily also means let us go heartily. When the angels serve God, they never do it as though they were half asleep. They're all alive and burning like flames of fire, They have six wings, and I warrant you, they use them all. When the Lord says, Gabriel, go upon my bidding, he outstrips the lightning. Oh, to exhibit some such ardor and zest in the service of God. If we pray, let us pray as if we meant it. If we worship, let us worship with all our hearts. And then going speedily means let us go at once or instantly. If any good thing has been neglected and we resolve to attend to do it better, let us do it at once. Revivals of religion, when is the best time for them? Directly. When is the best time to repent of sin? Today. When is the best time for a cold heart to grow warm? Today. When is the season for a sluggish Christian to be industrious? Today. When is the period for a backslider to return? Today. When is the time for one who has crawled along the road to heaven to mend his pace? Today. Is it not always today? And indeed, when should it be? Tomorrow, say you? Ah, but you may never have it, and when it comes, it will still be today. Tomorrow is only in the fool's almanac. It exists nowhere else. Today, today, let us go speedily. Every day, then, is a crisis, he says. I know we're all apt to think that we live in the most important era of history, and I admit that every day may appear a crisis, but I claim liberty to say that there never was a period in the world's history when Christian activity and prayerfulness and genuine revival were more needed than just now. I would defend Spurgeon's right to make that comment, uh, but I would suggest that it might sit better in our mouths today than it did in his then. Now he has to press forward because his time is closing, and as so often that means that with the drawing in of time there's an increase in intensity uh, i'm going to give you quite a lot of what spurgeon says under these next two brief points simply because there's a there's a, a density to it but i want you to notice too that while spurgeon has not in any way held back from making some comments and critiques of our attitude and our actions the the spirit in which we go about our holy business he nevertheless is is particularly gifted, I think, not only in, in scaring us out of foolishness and driving us out of false refuges, but in drawing us sweetly to Jesus Christ. And I think this is uh, where he, he now really turns in these last two points. So his fourth point in this sermon Remember the first three. They take great interest in divine worship. They stir each other up to attend upon the means of grace and they're urgent to attend upon these holy exercises at once. And now, fourth point, when God visits a people, they will not only attend to prayer and preaching and stir each other up to do so at once, but they will have a special eye to God in these duties. They go to pray before the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. So Spurgeon says, and perhaps it was more true in his day than for most of us in ours, many go to religious meetings to be seen of men. It may still be true for some. Now I'm glad, he says, that people attend divine worship for any reason, but mere custom is a poor motive and no sign of grace. So may we cultivate in our midst the desire to worship for God's sake, not for the preacher's sake, whoever he may be. I believe it is not wrong for a christian man to feel that he's better fed by one minister than by another and therefore to be most glad when god's servant is in the pulpit but if that feeling grows so that if he cannot hear his favorite preacher he will stay at home it is most mischievous and that's a a good word for the celebrity chaser and the conference attender Oh, is Mr. So-and-so going to preach? Is, is uh, this man or that man going to be on the platform? Well, if so, yeah, I want to go and hear him rather than I want to go and obtain a meeting with my God. I want to seek the Lord of hosts. I want to pray before the Lord. We cannot be chasing personalities. We want to be seeking God and God only. How different is my text, then, he says, from that formal worship into which it is so easy to fall. I've been to the prayer meeting, I've done my duty, I can go home satisfied. I've taken a seat at the tabernacle, listened to two sermons on the Sunday, and I feel I've done my duty. Oh, dear hearer, says Spurgeon, that's a poor way of living. I want a great deal more than all that, or I shall be wretched." At the prayer meeting, I must see God. I must pour out my soul before him. I must feel that the spirit of prayer has been there and that I have participated in it. Otherwise, what was the good of my being there? I must, when in the assembly on the Sabbath day, find some blessing to my own soul. I must get another glimpse of the Saviour. I must come to be somewhat more like Him. I must feel my sin rebuked or my flagging graces revived. I must feel that God has been blessing poor sinners and bringing them to Christ. I must feel indeed that I have come into contact with God or else what is my Sunday worth and what is my having been in the assembly worth. If God shall bless you indeed, you will worship spiritually and you will count nothing to be true worship which is not of the spirit, of the heart, of the soul. And then his last point, there's a blessed sign of God's visiting a people when each one of them is resolved personally that he will, in a spiritual manner, wait upon God. Let me just close here with Spurgeon's Uh, last few paragraphs, last two paragraphs. And then, as I say, do join us again next week for a sermon entitled Onward, uh, Sermon 1114. But let me leave you with this Spurgeon's closing exhortation, and may it stir our hearts to seek the Lord God for ourselves. Notice the last four words, I will go also. Let us go speedily to pray before the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. That is the point. I will go also. The Christian man should neither be content when he goes to worship to leave others behind, nor should he be content to drive others before him and stop behind himself. It is said of Julius Caesar that he owed his victories to the fact that he never said to his soldiers, Go, but always said, Let us go. That is the way to win. Example is mightier than precept. We read of the Pharisees of old that they laid burdens on other men's shoulders, but they themselves did not touch them with one of their fingers. True Christians are not so. They say, I will go also. Was not that bravely spoken of poor old Latimer when he was to be burnt with Ridley? Ridley was a younger and stronger man, and as he walked to the stake, old Latimer, with all his quaintness about him to the last, cried to his brother Ridley, "'Have after as fast as my poor old legs can carry me!' The dear old saint was marching to his burning as fast as he could, not at all loath to lay his aged body upon the altar for his lord. That is the kind of man who makes others into men, the man who habitually says, "'I will go also,' Even if I am called to be burned for Christ, whatever is to be done or suffered, I will go also. I would be ashamed to stand here and say to you, Brothers pray, brothers preach, brothers labour, and then be an idler myself. And you also would be ashamed to say to others, Let us pray, let us be earnest, while you are not praying and not earnest yourselves. Example is the backbone of instruction. Be thyself what thou wouldst have others be, and do thyself what thou wouldst have others do. I will go also, because I need to pray as much as anybody else. I will go to hear the word, for I need to hear it as well as others. I will go and wait upon God, for I need to see his face. I will cry to him for a blessing, for I want a blessing. I will confess my sin before him, for I am full of it. I will ask mercy through the precious blood of Jesus, for I must have it or perish. I will go also. If nobody else will go, I will go. And if all the rest go, I will go also. I do not want to pledge any of you this morning. I shall not, therefore, ask you to hold up your hands. But I should like to put it very personally to all the members of this church. We have enjoyed the presence and blessing of God for many years in a very remarkable manner, and it is not taken from us. But I am jealous. I believe it is a godly jealousy and not unbelief, lest there should be among us a slackness in prayer and a want of zeal for the glory of God and a neglecting of the souls of our neighbours and a ceasing to believe to the full in our mission and in the call of God to be each one of us in this world as Christ was, saviours of others. My brethren, knit together as we are in church fellowship, and bound by common cords to one blessed Master, let each one say within himself, I will go also. The church shall be the subject of my prayer. The minister shall share in my petitions. The Sabbath school shall not be forgotten. The college shall be remembered in supplication. The orphanage shall have my heart's petitions. I will plead with God for the evangelists. I will consider the congregation at the tabernacle and pray that it may gently melt into the church. I will pray for the strangers who fill the aisles and crowd the pews that God will bless them. Yea, I will say unto God this day, My God, thou art saved me given me a part and lot among thy people and put me in thy garden where thy people grow and flourish i will not be a barren tree but abound in fruits especially in prayer if i cannot do anything else i can pray if this be my one might i will put that into the treasury i will put thee in remembrance and plead with thee and give thee no rest until thou establish thy cause and make it praise in the earth I am not asking more of you than Jesus would ask, nor do I exact anything at your hands. You will cheerfully render that which is a tribute due to the infinite love of your Lord. Now, do not say, dear brother, I hope the church will wake up. Leave it alone, and mind that you wake up yourself. Do not say, I hope they will be stirred up this morning. Never mind others, stir up yourself. Begin to inquire, Which prayer meeting shall I go to, for I mean to join the people of God and let them hear my voice or at least have my presence. And if I cannot go to the tabernacle, I will drop in near my own house. And if there's no meeting there, I will open my own house. The largest room of my cottage shall be used for a prayer meeting, or my parlour if I have one. I will have a share in the glorious work of attracting a blessing from the skies. I will send up my electric rod of prayer into the clouds of blessing to bring down the divine force. Do it. Do it. Let each one say, I will go also. May God bless this word to his people, and I am sure it will result in benediction to sinners. For remember, you ungodly ones, that all this noise is about you. What we want the blessing of God for is that you may be saved. We cannot bear that you should remain as you are, unconverted, and I am asking God's people to pray specially with an eye to your salvation. Shall we think about your souls, and will you not think about them yourselves? Are we inclined to move heaven and earth that you might be saved, and will you sit still and perish? May the Lord awaken you to say, If others are going to pray unto the Lord and seek his face, I will go also. And the Lord bless you.